Welcome to the Mission Matters podcast, celebrating the people and initiatives that embody the Jesuit tradition of St. Louis University, celebrating what matters in the 200-year-old-plus mission that is St. Louis U, brought to you from the Office of Mission and Identity. Last week, I had the privilege of interviewing Father David Sawalski, the Vice President for Mission and Identity, as he spoke to us about his role in the office, what's been going on in the Office of Mission and Identity, and also a bit of background on our celebration of the Ignatian year. During the course of that conversation, there were several hidden gems that came through, mostly about some of the artwork on campus that is hidden in plain sight. Those hidden gems were too good to let go. So thank you for joining us for this special edition podcast featuring some of the hidden places on campus where our mission and identity come through. So we are back after a long reprieve with Mission Matters. I am Virginia Herbers from the Office of Mission, and I am here with Father David Sawalski, Vice President in the Office of Mission and Identity. What has your experience been about how the university responded to COVID last year when it was the first time we were back in person? Yeah. I don't know how many people really understand how remarkable um, SLU's response has been to COVID. So all last year we were on campus. Granted, we were distanced in our classrooms. I mean, I, I said at one point to my assistant that at least because of COVID, more students saw the Marquette Gallery than ever before because that was set up as one of the classrooms. Uh, and having set up the Marquette Gallery as it's seen today when I was with the museums, I just was really kind of happy about that, right? Yeah, yeah it's um, a beautiful space. I know, the old library. The uh, and, and, and then, of course, that also meant that all of the assembly spaces that we have here, whether it's the Wool Ballrooms, the St. Louis Room, Marquette Gallery, all of those things were closed because those were all instructional spaces. And we, wouldn't, we weren't bringing people to campus anyway. So although we were able to be on campus, able to have students in the rest halls and that sort of thing, it was certainly different. Yeah. If there is anything of this whole experience, and, and admittedly it's minor, very fortunate, no family members have been severely ill from COVID, although a couple of them had it. No one I know uh, closely has died, although I know of Jesuits who have died. Um, out in Pennsylvania, for example, or in um, Los Gatos, the retirement center in California, for example, mm -hmm. they lost, I want to say, nine of their seniors, okay. uh, despite all of the protocols and everything else. So I feel really, really fortunate, and I say that as a preface to, there's still that, in my life, that was nothing more disconcerting than doing the first 8 o'clock mass a year ago back in August, standing in a church that was empty except for a half dozen campus ministers uh, with the camera on all the lights on going the lord be with you and being met with resounding silence yes in fact i mean if there was a good thing about wearing a mask then people couldn't see me mumbling the responses so i could at least keep the timing right <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah i never thought about that yeah lord be with you and also with you sort yeah. of thing um so the difference between then and today is uh, even in something i mean how do you do sacramental ministry without people right especially the celebration of the eucharist 
And yet that level of unknowingness, because at that time there were no vaccines, right? So we're just trying to yeah. keep people safe and keep them out of the hospital. Right. I had mass this morning out at the Academy of the Sacred Heart. This mm. is their feast day of uh, Mother Most Admirable. It's, it's kind of this miraculous thing. And one of their convents in Rome where this, uh, one of the sisters decided that she was going to paint a fresco. I don't know if people listening know what that means, but you apply wet plaster to the wall, and then you have to paint before it dries, and then the pigment is absorbed into the plaster, so it's a very stable form of art. It's what the Sistine Chapel ceiling is, that sort of, sort of business. And she did the whole thing, and it all dried, and it looked awful. Colors were all murky. They all seemed off, all that. In fact, it was so embarrassing, but it was also permanent. So unless they chipped out the wall, it was going to be there. So they did what any good, smart, religious woman would do. We're not going to spend money chipping this thing off. We'll just get a curtain and cover it up. Of course. Oh, yeah. And so that was the way it was. And once it happened, you know, you just stop thinking about it. Well, one day they had a visit from, of all people, Pope Pius IX. And he's walking down that hallway, and he goes, oh, there's a curtain. Is there a window there? No. Well, what is it? And he pulls the curtain back, and here's this fresco, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And he goes, Mother Most Admirable in Latin, which I would just screw that up if I said that. And the Blessed Virgin Mary was in this incredible rose gown. and So they do this feast day mass at all of the Sacred Heart schools throughout throughout the world, which is pretty cool, right? It's kind of like our Mass of the Holy Spirit. We all know we kind of feel good about the idea that we know at every Jesuit campus around the yeah. world yeah. when school starts, everybody's celebrating Mass of the Holy Spirit, which is what we do here as well. So they have this Mass, and of course, I'm not going to talk about this fresco because I know they've either been talked to about it or it turns out the principal came up and talked all about it after Mass was over. So I was talking, I decided I'd share with the kids about a painting that's in the St. Louis University Museum of Art, and it's called Missed Christmas, the Flu. And it's by this Austrian artist named Friedensreich Hunterwasser. So it's uh, Fred the Empire, <laughs> Hundred Waters. This may come as a surprise. It was done in the early 20th century. He was a surrealist. And you have to see this. You have to see this painting. But anyway, it has a landscape and a cityscape in the background. And then in the foreground is a woman who's staring straight at you with kind of this greenish complexion. She's clearly sick. And then there's these huge raindrops coming down. And I was giving a tour of fifth and sixth graders one day. We went to this painting. And I said, here's the painting. Here's the name. Can any of you uh, think about why this is the title of the painting? And this little girl, fifth grader, sixth grader, put her hands on her hips, and she goes, well, it's obvious. And I said, it is? And she goes, yes, she's clearly under the weather. <laughs> you gotta listen. you got to listen to people because they say smart stuff. And then I was thinking, now with COVID, right, the timing of that painting and putting the flu in the title he paints that right during or right after the Spanish flu. Wow. So a hundred years later, you know, uh -huh. we've got this example on on exhibit at, at the art museum. About. How about that? I'm gonna have to go look that one up. What's yeah. the title of it again? Uh, Missed Christmas, the flu. 
you know, and then I could segue into, ooh, why am I talking about art? You know, our original art collection came to this campus in the 1840s. It's the first museum, as we say, west of the Mississippi. The uh, first museum actually was opened in about 1836, and then art was Father DeSmet would return to Europe to fundraise for his work among the indigenous peoples. And he actually was trained as a cartographer. And when he was on his horse going throughout the American West, he would draw maps and the features, whether it's mountains, lakes, streams, rivers, all of that sort of thing. And then when he left to Europe to go fundraising, he would put the names of benefactors on the map. And then he would see Virginia Herbers, and he go, why, why, Virginia, I was thinking about you when I was in this, this territory, this Dakota territory, and I decided to name this lake after you. Oh, my. Pretty slick, huh? Very slick. Yeah. But he would not only do that, but they would also have family members, in particular for the Belgians, who were the first ones here, uh, would collect things for the college, for the university. And it'd be artwork, it'd be library books, it'd be scientific instruments, and, they, and he'd pack it all up and oh my bring gosh. it over. And so that was kind of the starting point for this collection, these museums that are here at the university. It's kind of amazing. So you think about St. Louis. I mean, we sponsor the university. We've got the two high schools. We've got Loyola Academy. Mm-hmm. We have the two parishes, St. Matthew's and the College Church, and a retreat house just here. But the Shrine of St. Joseph's, which I don't know if many people have been to it or are familiar with it here in St. Louis. It's a shrine because one of the accepted miracles for the canonization of St. Peter Claver, Jesuit saint, uh, took place in that church, right? And it was a Jesuit church until the 1950s, and this is probably where the archbishops would say, well, what were we thinking when they asked the relig- orders of religious men to surrender up the parishes that they were administrating because they had so many diocesan priests, they didn't have places to assign them. Right. So St. Joe's is the fourth oldest church in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and it was the German church, which I don't. people obviously think, well, that because the German immigrants were in the neighborhood. Yes, true. Uh, but it was also the German church because the preaching was in German. And the college church, the preaching, which was mostly Irish, was preaching was in English. And then the old cathedral downtown, the preaching was in French. I mean, in times when all of the, the liturgy itself was in Latin. Yes, but the preaching. But the preaching would be. Vernacular. Yeah. Well, I so mean, college so church is as beautiful as beautiful can be, right? Yeah. And, and most people are looking at the college church when they talk about it being beautiful as looking at the architecture as well as the stained glass, yeah. right? Yes. What most people don't know is stained glass didn't get put in until the 1930s. And the statuary itself is all white marble. Mm-hmm. And if you look particularly at the two side altars, mm-hmm. that's by an artist. Why am I doing all the art talk here? I don't know, but I love it. Uh, uh, an going. artist named Joseph Sybil. And he basically, his career was to do ecclesiastical art. Okay. And he did those two altars. And the one is the death of Joseph. The death of Joseph or the apotheosis of Joseph. And the other one is Our Lady, Helper of the Afflicted. And a little bit similar to like down in New Orleans, Our Lady of Prompt Sucker, right? Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. But so if you look closely at those statues, which are incredibly well done, mm-hmm. and especially the, the Marian uh, piece, and you see the people, if you know what the title is, and you see who, who the people are that are there. And he's also 
did quite a bit of the sculpture that's in St. Patrick's in New York and in St. Peter and Paul, the Cathedral of Philadelphia, for example. Okay. They're really, really great pieces. All that to say, getting back to St. Joe's, right? It's kind of a different reality. Again, brick, it's in a Romanesque style. It was a German parish where they, they had a lot of talent, but not a lot of resources. What would look to be marble columns and things like that are all painted wood, mm -hmm. uh, you know, marbleized sort of thing. But at the same time, kind of mm -hmm. the Jesuit iconography that you would really recognize that you don't see so well at the college church yes. is all there, whether it's a, a gilded IHS on the ceiling of the vestibule right. or that big statue of St. Peter Claver that's in the vestibule, or you look at those altars that has you know, St. Joseph and then St. Ignatius and the altar of youth, which was dismantled when they remodeled the college church here. Um, but you can see St. Stanislaus, St. John Berkman's, and Aloysius Gonzaga. Uh, are in the couple's house patio garden. So that was a common feature in Jesuit churches was the altar of youth. I'll be darned. How yeah, and those are, they're called uh, the boy saints because uh, each one died prior to their ordination. So what's the intersection of all of this with SLU's mission and identity? Really goes back to the very beginning of, of the Society of Jesus that saw culture as being incredibly important and you had to engage it as opposed to being walled into a monastery and pretend that that wasn't happening and you know famously the Jesuits uh, embraced the Baroque period and the, mm -hmm. you know, the major churches that the Jesuits were known for throughout the world in the 17th and 18th century were in that style and and did go international mostly yeah. because of, of the Jesuits and I sometimes think it's interesting to us that we don't recognize that legacy as much as we could or should. So thank you once again for joining us for this special edition podcast of Mission Matters, where we highlight the people and initiatives that make the mission come to life here on campus. If you know of someone who's living the mission quietly but out loud, please let us know so we can be in touch with them and help them spread the good word about all that's going on here at SLU. For now, thank you so much, and until next time. You can engage the mission intentionally here at SLU, and you can encounter it randomly. But good luck graduating without ever touching it in some way. God bless everyone.